another exclusive one on the channel. And when people have asked this week, who you're having on, who you're having on, and I go through all the names of the different Liverpool characters, and I say the word showers, people's eyes go big and they're like, wow, Michael Showers was the original guy out of talk stuff. So it's a real privilege to have Michael on here today with us, telling yes, us his life story. Really appreciate you spending time with us today. Do you want to just start out by telling us a little about how what growing up on talk stuff was like? Uh, well, it was no Toxteth in my day. It was L8 or South End. L8 was the postcode, yeah. And they, they, they only used that during the riots to try and make out that it was in a bigger area than it actually was. Uh, I enjoyed my childhood. Um, I was one of 11 children. Lived in, yeah, in uh, Thackeray Street, 21 Thackeray Street. I was born just off Upper Warwick Street and Upper Hill Street. Um, racism was... It's bad now, but I mean, then it was diabolical. I mean, you go to the shops, you got brown paint and brown mm. coats. And a woman up the street from us, she had a black dog, and of course she called it N And then every time we passed, she'd come out and say, come on, N come on, N as we were walking past. Just yeah. to give the, the audience an idea, because they're going to look at you and think, this guy's not that old. Um, but he's 75, so we're going back to what years, what decade is this? To, 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 50s and 60s. 50s, post-war. Yeah. Yeah, so racism was just brutal. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't agree with it. To me, it's, it's an insulting word. And how you can help to, or hope to legitimize it. To me, it'd be like a Jew wearing a swastika. Well, I was always told that it could be, so for any race, basically, it means an ignorant person. Yeah. Yeah, and it's horrendous. From what we saw in Arizona, the cops out there, if you're black or Mexican, they're just not going to ask any questions, you know. You're gonna That's get, the same here. You're going to get a beat down or maybe even get killed. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Okay, so growing up in Toxteth then, how did you get involved in crime? LA I, I, actually, I was actually on the, f I was 15 when I was first stopped by the police on the corner of my own street a group of us stand there, and they came, they wanted to know my name. I asked them what they wanted to know my name for. And they said, no, you've got to give it. I said, well, I haven't got to give it because I've done nothing wrong. Yeah. I ended up getting arrested for, um, was it disturbing the Queen's Highway? And, of course, got a 10-shilling fine. And that was Probably a lot of money then, though. Yeah, it was. It was. And what was your next arrest after that? The next arrest after that was... Um, for a dance hall fight in uh, Croxeth, yeah. Broad Green, the Labour Club. Yeah. Uh, Alan Gale, Howard Gale's brother, he moved to Stalisfield Avenue in Norris Green from L8. Yeah. And he said, Oh, you should, there's a dance up there. They're having a Sunday, should see the girls. Of course, that, that was all, all right. they needed. <laughs> so a few of us, I think about five, jumped the bus on the Sunday, went to this dance. And it was good. We went there for a couple of weeks. And then one week, a group of fellas came to us and said, we don't want niggas coming up here dancing with our girls. Oh. So we just left it. And then the next week, 20 of us went. Yeah. Instead of the normal five. A fight broke out. And in the general melee, one guy got a two-stitch stab wound. I was one of five who was arrested for it. I was in um, Mendel Avenue first, the remand home. 
And then I had a fight in there over the nigger business again. And I was sent to Walton Jail because I had my 16th birthday in Walton Jail. And that, that, was, that was an eye-opener. In America, especially in Arizona, it's all racially divided gangs. It's like the whites, the blacks, the Mexicans, Mexican-Americans. So you're talking about going into prison way, way back. How was it divided back then? Well, racially, you, you took stick. That was it. It was just par for the course. Yeah. You'd have to fight. And I ended up getting um, Borstal. Five of us got Borstal. Um, went to the, because in those days, there was no um, legal aid. Yeah. And mum and dad, dad went to wait to see. Mum couldn't afford a solicitor. So we got what, what I call a doc brief. He was a barrister who the judge instructed to cover all the eventualities. And that was it. He came downstairs I said, well, they never stabbed anybody. He said, look, the judge knows you didn't stab anybody. He knows all five of you couldn't have stabbed the person. He said, but you were there. He said, so best thing you do, you've been in custody now three months. You can be home tonight. Plead guilty. We all changed our plea to guilty. I got Borstal. I got Borstal how long? Two years. First day in Borstal, what was that like? Uh, in, the, in the actual Borstal, we got there in the afternoon, uh, because you go from Walton, then you used to go to the allocation centre, which was Wilmot Scrubs. And I went from the Scrubs to Everthorpe Borstal. And we got there in the afternoon, locked in our cell. And when everybody's come from work and had a wash and it's tea time, they opened me up for tea. And uh, I remember, I always remember when I came to the top of the stairs, the chorus started no. banging. 90 voices. Shouting, didn't take me long to have a fight the next day. <laughs> Grave. Mm -hmm. What's going through your head then? Just raw survival? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, Liverpool had prepared me for it because yeah. with the racism that went on and we, we learned to fight and to run. Yeah. <laughs> um, I could do both. And uh, that was it. Do you think then in a situation like that, You've got to make an example. You've got to stand up, show heart. Otherwise, they're just going to all be like... Coming oh, yeah. One, one, once you, you, you've shown yourself to be weak, you're in trouble. Yeah. yeah. And the guards, were they equally discriminating against you as well as the prisoners? Oh, yeah. They were all the usual um, nigger jokes. Because I remember once I got shipped out of that borstal um, and I went to Reading, which was a punishment borstal. And I remember when I walked in, one of the guards just came, he punched me in the face. He said, there's only one thing I hate worse than a scouse, and that's a... So that was my <laughs> introduction to the place. Yeah. I never thought, well, I wouldn't know, obviously, because I'm not black, but I never really thought it was that bad in this country. I've seen it with my own eyes in America, but I, I never thought it was, you know. Well, it's... Um it's been horrendous, hasn't it? There's been lynchings and, and murders and all kinds over the years. And I've, I don't think I've ever spoke to anyone who's been in prison that long ago, so I'm kind of fascinated about things like, what did they feed you back then? Was it just like the slopping out style system? Well, then obviously there was no toilets in the cells. No toilets. And of course, with me being so young, I was in a cell by myself. Yeah. The four cell, but I was in it by myself. And you used to we in a, a pot and slop out the next morning. That's the way it was. Yeah. yeah. Did you have any recreation? 
No, there's nothing. You're banged up 23 hours a day. You had a, an hour's exercise walking around the cage. Walking around the cage. Yeah, that was it. No day room or anything. No, no, no. Well, it hadn't changed that much because I was there in 91 and it was still slop out on H-Wing. So, like, you'd think by then, the, the, you know, the amount of time from when you were there to yeah. 91, they'd have actually done something about it. No, they don't care. So the prison population now is nearly all low-level drug users, or people committing crimes all around, you know, drugs. Yeah. I imagine back then it was different, the prison population. Oh, yeah, it's mostly... Um, Robbery, violence, that's it. Robbery and violence. Yeah. yeah. So how many years did you stay in the Borstal? Did the whole lot, two years. Two years. Yeah. What did you do when you got out? When I got out, I was angry. <laughs> and um, I met a couple of pals from Heighton, and they said, I'm uh, interested in any graft. I obviously said yes. And started working with them. And what particular graft was that? Snatches from banks, um, warehouse robbery. We even looked at Ford's wages one night, but when we got there, there was another firm sitting off as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, we forgot about that one. Could you go and ask? Have you got any stories of, of mishaps or um, close shaves from the grafts? Oh, yeah. I mean, I. A, a couple of times they've, they've, they've set me up and they once had a, a guy who they called the butler. His name was Tony, Tony Malloy, I think it was. But he, he was an old guy and he worked in stately homes. And somehow, I found out afterwards, the police had put him onto it. He came to me and said he was doing a, a, a dinner which the Queen was going to be at. And the house that he worked at, they'd taken all their jewellery out the safe for that weekend to where when the Queen came. So we went up, had a look at it, kitted ourselves out. But good enough, one of the guys with us fell as he was climbing the drain pipe and crashed through a greenhouse. So we all had to go. We ran out, because I remember I ran into a cow. Yeah. <laughs> it was pitch black. And I'm just running and splat. Oh. Big cow. <laughs> anyway, we, we ran, dispersed. And uh, we'd left the cars about three miles away. So we're walking through the streets. And we had a shotgun with us. So I said, well, there's no good walking down the streets with this. Well, came by a pub, a big tree. So dug a little hole, buried it under the tree, intending to come back for it. We made it to the car, and uh, I remember I'd, I'd hired a Mini. Yeah, I'd hired a Mini. And I was driving along, and we saw a, a big police Range Rover mm. behind us. But uh, he dropped back and dropped back, and that was it. That was the end of it. Next thing you know, we come up to what we thought was a crash, a furniture wagon and a lorry, across the road and then it was Michael Showers get out of the car with your hands up we are armed police wow so obviously got on the floor we're taken to Guildford that's where I'm based yeah we're taken to Guildford headquarters and we were uh, interviewed by the flying squad 
Birmingham police, uh, Liverpool police, all of them. And after two days, we released. They knew about the job, but there's nothing they could do because there's nothing to connect us with the thing. It's lucky you had the hindsight to get rid of the gun too, because that yeah. would have got you all and shit, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, we've all been finished. Yeah. I'm probably shot. So You say that, not even jokingly though. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you had brandished that, even come out with it, you yeah. probably would have shot you. Yeah, and it's legitimate, that's it. What was your next job then after that? After that, um, we did we did a few snatches on banks and things like that. People deposit money, and we decided to go Scotland, sort an office in Scotland. Went up there. Well, I didn't go up because with me being black, stuck out. Mm. So I trusted them. They 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 sort the work out, sort everything out. On the day. I went up there, or well, on the morning, because it was like Sunday night morning, Monday morning, early hours. Went in, tied four people up, came away with about 100 grand. Wow. So, we knew what we were looking at. That was worth a lot more back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious as to what kind of preparation goes into doing a bank job, and what, um, you know, equipment you have, or outfits and stuff, balaclavas and stuff. Well, I used to have... Um, what colour is it? All black boiler suit. Boots. And a full balaclava with no eyes in. So they couldn't see what colour it was. And uh, that was it. How did you see? Could see. Like, it's like... Like per of tights, you could actually see through, but you can't yeah, see. But it, it was like a, a more a woolen balaclava. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With lots of little holes in it, could see. Do you have a meeting beforehand and each person's got a designated role? Oh, yeah, everybody knows what everybody's doing. I mean, I, for instance, I never carried the gun. We had one person who, t- who took the gun because he didn't know when to use it and when not to use it and things like that. Save cracker and all that. Yeah. It's like Mr. Pink and Mr. Black type of thing, isn't it? What are all the different roles then? So you've got the gunman, yeah. safe cracker, driver, getaway driver, anything else? Well, as I say, um, everybody sort of took part in, when you, especially when you had tie up. On the floor, bind the legs, and the arms, bind the mouth. That's it. Did you get any have a go heroes on those jobs? You had one on a post office, but um, the lad, the gunman, just let one go in the air. And they stopped dead. Oh, yeah. That was yeah. it. You don't have to worry about people getting on the phones because there probably no phones. Was no. There? no. What was the camera situation back then? Well, a handful of cameras in the whole city. Really. Yeah. Wow. So you're getting away with these jobs. What are you blowing your money on? Wine, women and song. <laughs> <laughs> Is that domestic or overseas or both? Both. <laughs> Where were some of your favourite places to go? Paris. Paris. Loved Paris. Yeah. Loved Paris. French women. Yeah. What's your favourite tipple, by the way? Or what? I Well, I, I like Chablis and I like... Um... Oh, golly. It'll come to me. It'll come to me. That's okay. Now, how often were you doing them? Like, are you blowing the money right away and just bang onto another one, or are you being a bit more sensible and spacing them out? No, I mean, you, you couldn't sort of throw the money away that fast. And um, 
is a matter of sometimes a couple of months before you look at something else. Yeah. 100,000, then it's probably like a million now, isn't it? God, isn't it? Yeah. When did your luck run out? Well, my luck never ran out, actually. It never ran out? It never ran out. They had to fit me up to, for it to run out. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, it got to the point where I... We're getting them sitting outside my house, openly, the detectives, the crime squad. And when it's I moved, giving them a cup of coffee. When I moved, they move. Yeah. When I stopped, they'd stop. Yeah. Just blatant. They would, so in the end, I said, well, I'll give it a miss. I'll go to Nigeria, to my dad's country. I'll go there for a bit, which I did. Uh, while I was there, I bumped into a seaman who was coming to Liverpool. And he said to me, oh, he takes a Igbo or weed, as they call it. that's what they call it, Igbo. He was, um, take weed to Liverpool. Do I know anybody who'd buy it? I said, yeah, no problem. Ask, tell me when your ship arrives and I'll get somebody to come down. Did that. All went well. And I thought to myself, well, why is he taking it when I could be sending it? So, started sending it. Open a new door for yourself. Hmm? Approximately what year was that? 1977, 78. 77, 78. Hmm. You were one of the, probably the first pe um, people get bringing it in like that. When was Howard Marks? When was he doing his thing, do you know? I don't know. It's a bit later than you, was it? I think so. Yeah. yeah. And... You're getting small amounts at first and it's building up into big amounts. Well, the first one we did, I did 100 weight. And it was what then? It was 30 pound, 300 pound a pound. Yeah. So that was no problem. Paid the people who got it off. Everybody's happy. Yeah. Next time, the 250 worked up to a ton. Wow. Yeah. So how many people have you got working for you at the, at the peak of it there? Well, let's see, there was um, two sails, two docks. Eight. Eight. Eight of us. That's bringing it in. Yeah. What about on the distribution side? No, that's everybody. Oh, it's everybody? Yeah. Okay. That's very sensible, that. If you keep your numbers down, at the end of the day... There's less people for you to rat on, isn't there? Less people for you to rat on you, more, more to say, you know what I mean? People always told me, you should keep your, your, your business enterprise for no more than one hand of people. Which I thought, well, that's daft, that. The more people you got in, the more you can get rid of. But it's not, because it's the more people can get you in fucking trouble. Oh, yeah, it only takes someone, someone to get caught with something, and that's it. Yeah. Did you keep going with the weed or did you see that Coke had a higher profit margin? Uh, believe it or not, I've never actually done powder. Okay. I've never done powder. Right. And I could have done powder because they were asking me in London, because I, I worked with um, two of the train robbers. Yeah. Because when I was in jail, I, was, I met the, the, the train robbers, Eddie Richardson, some of the craze. And when it came out, I associated with them. Yeah. And a lot of them used to do weed. So I used to go up there, get the weed, two weeks later, take the money down. And people were asking me, listen, we've got the brown, do you want the brown? I said, well, I don't know anybody who's on it. I don't know anybody who buys it. And we didn't. We didn't, because it, it, the notice was on Granby Street on the wall then. 
Um, this is Toxteth, not Croxteth. Strictly ganja. No powders. It's a big notice. Now when you say weed, is it like solid form or was it like sort of centimelia? Well, well you, you both. Both? Yeah. I've always liked Rocky. Yeah. Rocky still sells well. Yeah. The first weed we used to get was in Toxteth, wasn't it? Where yeah, was the, What was that place that we went to? Uh, Coconut Grove. That was called. Oh yeah, Roy Stevens place. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what was it like? Could you just give us a bit of a description of meeting the Crays and the Richardsons and what that was like? Well, they were all decent enough people. They um, very trustworthy. Didn't like screws. There was no two ways about it. You could trust them. Um, the train robbers, as I say, I, I knew them all well. Ronnie Bender, he was with the, um, what's her name? The Craze. Um, Roy Shaw. Just interviewed his son. This morning, yeah, yeah. Gary Shaw. Yeah. Yeah, good, good people. Good people. So was this then on the sentence, you met those guys on the sentence that you got set up for? Or is this a different no, sentence? No, this is, this is earlier. Oh, earlier. Yeah, this is earlier. Okay. And I'd say I, I continued in a relationship with them for a good 20 years. Yeah. yeah. How many sentences have you done? Ooh, one, two, three, four. Four? Yeah. And what was the most, the longest one, most serious charges? The 20. 20? Yeah. So what did they get you for on that one? That was the um, fabrication of the custom officers for um, heroin. They invented the heroin deal. Yeah, they, what they did, they had a system called the um, CI, Confidential Informant. Yeah. And what they were doing, they were getting Pakistani drug smugglers to use their own heroin to send to England. And then they'd phone people to come and get it. And of course, once the people came, the customs, customs get them. And... At the time, I was working in the uh, as the deputy head of unit in the immigration, and I had a client who came, and he wanted entry clearance for his new wife. He'd just married a wife in Pakistan, and he came to me because I, his uncle, I got his uncle's British passport from Bradford. He came to me about three times at the office. But what I didn't know is that the customs were following him because they'd done a controlled delivery that he was going to collect. Mm. And so, of course, when they arrested, arrested him, about three weeks later, uh, they said, we've been following you here, we followed you there, we followed you to the immigration unit in Liverpool. What did you go there for? And he told them, he went to see a man called Mikhail, the, the, the Muslim version of Michael Mikhail. Um, he was going to get entry clearance for my wife to come to Britain. Tape goes off. Mm. Five hours later, the tape comes back on again. I now wish to tell you the truth. I was going to give the two kilos I bought to the man called Michael. He was going to sell it for my uncle. Fuck hell. And that was his evidence. What year was that one? 1991. What did he get out of that? He got a single-figure sentence. So that was your cover job then, was working in immigration? Yeah. 
<sighs> so, how long are you fighting that case? I'm still fighting it because You're still it, fighting it. Still fighting it. it. Was actually classified by the CCRC as a miscarriage of justice in 2017, and two custom officers from my case were convicted and sentenced at Liverpool Crown Court. They were tried at Leeds, convicted, try and sentenced at Liverpool. And I, I went to the, the, the sentencing, and I was fuming because the judge was saying he didn't want to do anything to upset their pensions and things like that. And they got six months suspended sentence oh, each. What about you? For what sale of heroin. Because some of the people, were, there was about eight cases that went up to the appeal court. And mine was the only one that didn't get through. Mm. How did it feel getting sentenced to 20? I suppose I stayed sane by rationalising of all the things I'd got away with. Uh, karma. Yeah. Were you in shock at first? Oh, obviously, yeah. Well, for getting 20 for something that you got fit off, it must take out. I mean... You can understand if you'd actually done the crime and you got the 20 for it, but to actually get fit up for it and do 20, it's just a total mis- If I'd have been doing heroin, I would have been a multi-millionaire. It's a mistrust of character. That's terrible, that. And it's the stigmatism as well, and isn't it? The character well, this assassination. Is it. They, 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 they could have caught me with weed. They, could, they didn't. They could have caught me for blags. They didn't. So when they actually fabricated they make sure it was something that was heinous right and something that the public would give me no support for there's no really time on weed is there well there is time obviously yeah. but it's not the same amount no, of time they no. can give you for like charlie and heroin well the maximum on weed is 14 yeah life is the maximum on powder should be legalized completely it's ridiculous so sentence to 20 shock you're telling yourself, right, I've done a lot of bad things in my life. Perhaps this is balancing it out. How, how are you adjusting psychologically in the weeks following your sentencing? It was made worse by the fact that my mother was killed oh. uh, the night after I was arrested. Jesus. By a stolen car. Holy shit. And they didn't let me go to my mother's funeral. Oh, my God. Because when I met Reggie Cray. Yeah. He said, fuck me, scarce. You'll go to your mother's fucking funeral either. At least let us go to our mother's funeral. Yeah. That's low, isn't it? Yeah. And when I was that, that sentence, my mother, I lost. I lost a son. I lost two sisters. And that one sentence. Jesus. Yeah. But they let the craze go to their mother's funeral, but yeah. they wouldn't let you go to yours. <sighs> that is so wrong. Sorry to hear about your losses, but I just... I can't justify that. I don't. It's more racism, isn't it? No, yeah. It's not like you're going to run from there, is it? No. You know what I mean? So did this cause... I mean, when I was facing 200 years in Arizona, I thought I'm never getting out of here. And I'm, I'm just, I am just plan to just slash my wrists at one point. I felt that low. You know, broke, broke my parents' heart and all that stuff, the damage it caused to my family. Did, is that the kind of, like, did you go have those kind of thoughts no I from the time I was sentenced I was working walking down the stairs working out the date that I was going to get out yeah 
you were looking forward to your mm-hmm. your sentencing day. Because when I got sentenced, then that was one of the happiest days of my life because I could see when I was going to get out. Yeah. Once you got that, the uncertainty lifts, doesn't it? And um, did you settle into a routine? Yeah, it was. Um, it's pretty easy. I worked actually on the hot plate. Okay, which is your favourite? Yeah. Well, the, my, my first favourite was actually working in the kitchen. The yeah. second was the hot plate. Yeah, I worked on the hot plate, and I also I was also a listener um, for the suicide. Uh, what to anti-suicide? I was on that. What kind of stories were the depressed suicidal prisoners telling you? A lot of it was like the wife had left them and they couldn't take it anymore. That was it. They just got a dear John. Yeah. Yeah, you see guys and the, the, the wife partners visit them every week and it just stops and the guy's like looking out the window at the car park, mm. hoping to see his wife's car and he's, he's gutted and it's like some of them never bounced back from that, did they? Nope. Did you have visits? Yep, yeah. My wife, uh, daughter... And uh, pals, you come up. I used to hate visits, especially when I was in Walton, because like you're not far away from home. You look forward to the visit. You look forward to all the visits going on. But then they're going out one door, you're going out the other. It's just like I was sort of put a downer on things for me in a way. Walking I mean? back to the cell, you yeah. Thinking- I was lucky in America because I didn't get visits. Yeah. Well, I did have immigration come to see me. Now. Not immigration, embassy. Yeah, Some little dear yeah. Scottish lady from the embassy <laughs> come to see me. But, um, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't really do his visits because it's like, it's nice seeing him, but then you're sort of waiting for your next visit and you, you, if you don't say, if you don't get visits, you kind of, you get that mindset where, all right, I'm not going to visit. But it is nice to see people too. I just yeah. didn't like it when they went one way and you had to go the other, you know what I mean? It was part of the course, that was it. Yeah. So Jamie sent me some information here. He said um, there was a joke around Liverpool during your sentence. This is a joke that the police were making. There won't be any showers in Liverpool for no, what, a long what's time. What's the weather forecast in Toxteth? No showers for 20 years. Hey! <laughs> Why did the police have it in for you that much? Because I was making so much money and they couldn't apprehend me. They knew what I was doing, but in those days, unless they actually caught you at it, because I was actually stopped going out of um, Speak Airport with £64,000. And I was taken to the back by the special branch. And they said, where'd you get this money? I said, I drew out my bank this morning, gave them the phone number of the bank, which was Lewis's bank, Lloyd's. And they'd opened for me early. They'd counted it, given it to me. I'd gone to the airport. And once they checked that, they had to let me go. That's was, the clever way to do it. Instead of taking, you've got a receipt for your money, haven't you? Oh, yeah. If you didn't have a receipt, they probably would have like put half of that in their pockets, wouldn't they? They would have put all of it in and confiscated <laughs> it. They would have. So, Jamie describes your brother Delroy as the most interesting man he's ever met in his life. Delroy also had some big sentences for crime. So do you want to tell us and the viewers a bit about your brother? Uh, Delroy is a character and a half. (laughs) Uh, 
he he got jailed when he was about 12. He got um, a preschool. And uh, that's been the way ever since. So is he a career criminal? Not now. Not now, no. No, retired now, like myself. Very good. Some people don't know when to, though, do they? Yeah, but they don't They don't want you to retire because they they still want you. Yeah, the cattle market. And they're more kudos in like nicking me than nicking Joe yeah. Brooks. So Dell was best friends with Paul Sykes. Yes, Paul. I was with Paul as well, yeah. And Paul actually mentioned you in his book, Sweet Agony. Have you got any Sykesy stories? Oh, yeah. Um, and one day they were serving the food off the hot plate. The screws used to serve the food. And he said to the screw, he wanted a bit more cabbage or something. And he, no, sorry, Sykes, go on. You're like nobody, you're no different to anybody else. And he walked away and went, <sighs> threw his food down, all the food off the hot plate all over them. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How often did he kick off? Not that often, but when he kicked off, he kicked off. Yeah. yeah. Give the man an extra spoon of cabbage. It's cabbage, you know what I mean? Did you see him knock anyone out? A couple of times. What was that over? You get arguments, silly arguments in prison, which you forget the next day. Yeah. And that's it. Who are you looking at? That kind of thing. Nowadays, it's more over kites. It's like, you know, they've got like fucking the piece of fucking thing going outside the window. From yeah. one, always, always amazed me how they do that. They can actually get it from the other end of one prison to the other, just by a bit of bedding. Yeah, with yeah. the thing on it and they swing it to one to the other. But when I was there, there was a few naughty boys there and they'd like, they'd go swooping. They'd bring it in and take the path off themselves mm. and let it back out. You guarantee that in the morning they'd find out who it was. So Jamie's asked us ask you about other major crime figures, Chris Lambriano. Yeah, and you, Chris, well. Any Chris stories? No, just the usual... Prison banter, that's it. Yeah, we've had him on the podcast if anyone wants to watch that. Chris was clicked up with the craze, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Ronnie Bender? Ronnie, yeah, great guy. Yeah. Great guy, Ronnie. What was his gig back then? He was just, like most of us, the gym. That yeah. was it, to keep saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was what weights did you have available and stuff like that? Oh, yeah, good weights. Yeah. Three yeah, weights back in the yeah. day, yeah. Good weights then. Yeah. So they took him a, a full size, well, massive, two foot massive football fields. Really? On the weekend, you used to go out because I used to run. Yeah. Did that help you stay sane? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Did they have like gambling on running? No, they used to gamble on the horses. <laughs> Do you have a bookie? Yeah. Yeah. Did you participate in that? No, I'm not a gambler. Yeah, no. me neither. So, Roy Shaw. Roy Short, good one, Roy. Another character. They're all characters. Yeah. Most of the Cockneys. Yeah. Yeah. And all very loyal to each other. Because, and people watching this can see how polite and well-educated you are in prison. Did you utilise that as a form of currency? For example, I've got this degree, you know, when I walked up to the gang members... After a year, I've been in there and I got moved up to a maximum security one and I'm walking up to the gang members doing the prison walk, you know, hoping they're going to accept me. But And then I go back to myself, I spoke to them and the, the head of the gang 
brings all his legal paperwork. <laughs> He's like, yeah, always oh, read my case. Did you do anything like that? I'd helped with a few, actually. And uh, letters, because you know, a lot of people couldn't actually write. Yeah, about yeah. a third of them couldn't read and write where I was, I was in Arizona. I did a lot of that in Arizona. Young lads who didn't, didn't know what the letters were saying. And the worst of it is that like, you pretend they know what they're saying, and it was only for one. It'd be laughable, it was just sad. He's reading it. And I said, Do you get a good letter? said, Oh, yeah, I always get good letters. And then, But it was upside down. I said, I'm not being funny, I'm not being like disrespectful. Do you want me to read it for you? Oh, will you? I feel like a dickhead asking people. I said, No. I had a whole stack and I read them all. And I got to like three quarters way through. And his, his girl was there, Jonathan. Oh. And I thought, so I waited. I, I didn't mention that. I skipped it. And like three weeks, like another letter three weeks after that. Very sorry about that. I went off the rails and it won't happen again. So I didn't even mention it. Yeah. Maybe, you know, because he, he could have done something stupid. It wasn't, maybe it wasn't up to me not to tell him, but I don't really think that he was in that right state of mind. Because he was on psych meds as well. Yeah. I don't think he was in that state of mind to actually take it, you know what I mean? Yeah. I thought that was kind of him in a way. I mean, other people say, oh, you should have just told him, let him, uh, you know, tell him the truth. But, I mean, what's the point in three weeks later the girl wants to be back with him? Yeah, I mean... I mean, he might not have been there. Then three weeks, he might have done something stupid. You so. shielded him from it then, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. So... Where did you educate yourself? In school or in prison? No, school just w was educating us for factory fodder. Yeah. That's it. Um, I did um, GCSEs, or GCs, in um, Borstal, and that was it. And I did um, English language, English literature, A-level English literature, A-level maths, and O-level maths, and history. Where, where did you learn to play chess? I learned to play chess in prison. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that you enjoyed chess and classical music. I do indeed. I was the same. I'd be playing my chess and listening to some of Vivaldi, Beethoven. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Beethoven's the master. Yeah, definitely. I'm not being funny, but you sound probably the poshest scouser I know. Not my, my, my father's fault. Because uh, he used to say, you want to be as good as the white man. You have to be twice better. And he said, when you speak... It's not yeah, it's yes. Not gimme, give it to me. You're very, yeah, very eloquent, yeah. Yeah, yeah used, to, used to be quite uh, strict. I'm a mum as well, about speaking. Do you think people find you so fascinating because of that contrast? People are watching now and seeing what a gentleman you are, but then there's quotes from you, some things that you've said in the past, such as, some people go to work on a nine-to-five. In my job, I carried a gun and a balaclava. And that was it? That was my job? Yeah. It was. Do you think it's the it's the contrast that people find interesting about you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Delroy said to Jamie Boyle, I'm not your average darkie from talk stuff. I hope you don't mind me saying, Michael, that you're not your average criminal because your interests are playing chess and listening to classical. Michael, in 1991, you were involved in Operation Rain Man, what was that one about? That was the fabrication. That was the heroin fabrication. Yes. Okay. That was um, 
the control delivery people. Yeah. Yeah. Is Delroy your younger brother? He's the youngest of eleven. Yeah. And is it um, how many brothers and sisters then? Eleven, right? There's six boys, five girls. Six boys, five girls. Yeah. Wow. So I was at Liverpool University in the eighties, and um, so you're on right times. It's what right times. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. What, that's what I'm going to now. Can you tell us all about the Toxic Riots? Well, we all know how they started. Um, how did they start? Because we've got a lot of American viewers who are not familiar. We, well, they started with uh, a youth, a then youth, called Leroy Cooper, who was riding a motorcycle, and the police thought that it was stolen and uh, forced him to a halt and tried to arrest him. A couple of young boys were standing on the corner, didn't like it, threw a few bricks, got him away. That was the start of the riot because then the police piled in in force and started just beating and nicking people. Was that day one? That was day one, yeah. So, of course, the word went out and everybody just congregated. Bricks, bottles, uh, pavement, anything. How long did it last? Sporadic, about two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. Are you familiar with Stephen French, aka the devil? I am indeed. Do you have any stories about him? Because we've had him on. No. I mean, I know him, but I don't know him that well. Yeah. Yeah. What was Toxtus life in, in the aftermath of the riots? It was the best feeling I'd ever had in LA because there was so much unity and people were very, very political. And People who hadn't spoken for years came together. And uh, I don't know if it was the fighting together that did it, but the unity was something to be seen. But in your days, I mean, you would imagine with it, everyone knows one another. I mean, like, yeah, people like, oh, you could leave your front door open and you wouldn't get robbed of anything. Was it very much like that? Very much like that in Liverpool late. Yeah. Very, very close-knit community, black and white. Big houses and... Yeah. And a lot of Big them were, families. Yeah, a lot of them were, were let off, were rented. Yeah. You get three or four families in one house on like Canning Street and Faulkner Street. Yeah. And old Faulkner Street, I mean, you'd, ha you'd have different sort of generations of people living in the same house. Yeah. I mean, you'd have like granddad living at the first floor and then you'd have such and such and such and such. Yeah. We used to go a lot of the best. students, some of the student parties around there, the big, huge houses, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And our first rave was um, some scrapyard in Toxteth. Beaumont yeah. Street. Yeah. That was in the late 80s, wasn't it? Yeah. And then we started going to the state in Quadrant Park. Corcoran Grove, though, it's like me and him, we used to walk in. We were literally supposed to be the only white people in there. <laughs> I remember. And you go off. But I, I do a little deal. I, I you go off a little, do a little deal. I was stood on the stairs. I loved the whole feeling of it. <sighs> a few old guys playing dominoes and someone just playing on his banjo and stuff and I'd go and get a rum and coke and a pint and it's just like it was we were made to feel welcome you know what I mean yeah. I mean there were so many clubs in Liverpool 8 I mean there's around 20 clubs in, in, in just within like a mile of each other wow it was great did government policy change as a result of the Toxteth riots well Thatcher, it's already been said that she wanted to bring Liverpool to its knees. 
And she pretty much did. She pretty much did. I mean, that was be- before the riots or after? That's after the riots. She she just like made it worse. Yeah. What what policies did she? Well, enact? For a start, that the the money that was taken to Albert Dock was supposed to be for L eight for improving housing and things like that. It went into the Albert Dock for tourism. Because I, I had meetings with Heseltine and because um, I was one of the Liverpool 8 Defence Committee. We were an organisation that built itself to fight for the kids who were getting arrested for no reason at all. I mean, in one case, they actually had a guy on trial for um, having a can of petrol in his boot. And we got black barristers and black solicitors from London and they tested this petrol and it was water because what the police had done, they just tested the headspace and I've got the vapour from when there was petrol in it. Got you, got you. Did but you a lot of people nowadays will carry an extra can in case you run out of petrol. It's not good to carry one during riots. <laughs> oh, right, of course, yeah. Did you ever run for political office? No. No. But you were a leadership figure in the uh, negotiations then after the riots. Yeah. How how come you uh, ended up in that role? End up because when the riots happened, I was driving along Parliament Street and was stopped by a, a riot squad and they called me all the black bastards going and all the rest and trying to provoke me into doing something. And I said, that's it. The next day I went down to the Charles Wooten Centre where they were having all the meetings and got involved. They must have had black cops them days. Were, were they the same or were they? Well, a, a black policeman, to show that he's fair, he's going to be worse with me than a white policeman. Wow. You, you wouldn't expect that. You'd, you'd, you'd think a bit oh, of you immunity, <laughs> you know what I mean? You would. So going back to the 80s then, I just remember Liverpool, like, there was a lot of inner city, like, desolation. Yeah. A lot of people coming up to me asking me, have I got any spur money to spend? They've missed, they need boss money. Obviously, there's a lot of people addicted to heroin and things around the city centre. How did it, because I, I left in 91, came back in 2007. How did it transform into how it is now? And did as Toxus have transformed as well, because I've, I've not been back there. Well, Toxus. Oh, it, it's only a, a shadow itself, a shadow of what was. I mean, there's so many strangers there now. It was before we knew everybody, knew every family. The unity is not the same. And people keep coming to me and saying, you know, we need somebody to, to, to know to do this. Well, I said, look, you're there. Organise. And that's it. I've been on the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, march about uh, three months ago. That was my last march. Yeah. That was in Liverpool, was it? Yeah, from the Rialto. How many people came out for that? There was a good few thousand came out for that. A lot of a lot of good white support, yeah. which is what you need. It's all over the world, isn't it? Now, yeah. I mean, the things that are, these videos are showing have been going on forever, but the fact that. People are filming it now and putting it on social media. The cops killing yeah, the, the black it's, people. It's different. What did you think about that main one that sparked all this? Where he got choked. It was horrible to see. Yeah. Horrible to see. 
I mean, I've always been frightened of that kind of thing because I remember once during the riots, I was arrested. I was standing on the corner. I was standing with Father Peter, actually, from St. Bernard's. And the police Land Rover came. They jumped out, circled us, dragged me in the van. And I was worried because I thought, well, it's too blatant. Everybody's seen I wasn't doing anything. They took me to um, Cheapside and the inspector said that he'd saw me throw a pavement slab at a police van when it was going past. And uh, anyway, the, the, the people went and they got Rex making. Very and he good, came, very he good came down to the, um, the police station and he had me out within an hour without any charge. Did you have Rex? I used Rex, six or Rex a lot of times. With, with his half here, yeah. Once I started, uh, once my crime started going from normal witness county to crown, I went straight to Rex Making. And a, a good friend of mine, Roy Schmidt, was a good friend of his. He, he managed to get me legal aid with Rex Making. And he got me off a lot of charges. Not only just got me off a lot of charges, he also got me a lot of conversations over different conversations. Do you know this, lad? I've told you this. He seems to ask me. I think he's got amnesia or something. I've already told you this, lad. See how he treats me, viewers. <laughs> I just don't like repeating myself. I'm not a parrot. I don't like repeating myself. I'm not a parrot. <laughs> what is the solution to this? Is it never going to end? It just seems that people, as human nature, race, religion, politics... The Gambinos versus the Bananos. People just form groups and savage each other. How, how how can it ever be solved? Nature's way, isn't it? Well, it's sad because we didn't have that in our day. Uh, we didn't have competition firms who'd think of robbing you and things like that. There was nothing like that then. Yeah. But what about racism then? How can that be solved? Or can it? I wish. I wish I knew the answer. Yeah. It seems like it's going to be there forever. But, I mean, the good thing is my son is, um, my youngest is 18. He's going to uni next week. And he hasn't suffered racism. And I'm happy that he's got to 18 without suffering racism. And that's because, you know, in um, a lot of countries now, people being taught, uh, they got schools and stuff like that, yeah. you know, what's correct and what's not correct. Yeah. All right, well, going back to your earlier years then, you used to, used to drive around in a white Rolls Royce? I did indeed, yeah. And uh, Trans Am, uh, Carlton, uh, two V12 Jags. Wow. Bentley? No, didn't like Bentleys. Oh, was it Dell or the Bentley? Dell Red Bentley. Do you think that your, you know, being more low key now is healthier for your state of mind than, you know, back when you were making all this money and stuff? The way I look at it was that the people of my trafficking, yeah, I had a lot of stuff. I was emotionally immature, and it was, it didn't really give me happiness. How? What's your perspective on that? Oh, no, money made me happy. <laughs> There's no two ways about it. I mean, I, I've been poor and I've been rich. and first been rich. Rich. <laughs> It's the root of all evil, but I'd rather be evil with money in my pocket than evil without. 
<laughs> Jamie's asked me to ask you this then. Uh, looking back on your life now, do you regret your violent crimes? Not really, no. Because everything that happens, they say happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that I'm divorced, I now have a wife with whom I have complete faith and trust and I'm very happy. So if all those things had to happen for me to be that way, then so be it. Yeah, it's brought you to where you are today. So you've been speaking to Jamie about writing your life story. Are you going to be brutally honest in that book? Yeah, there's no no point in being otherwise. Yeah. And what are some of the main stories that you'll be including in that book? Crime, obviously. Yeah. Um, The roots of the importation. The riots. The politicians. Because they were were corrupt. In this country? Yeah. You have to pay them off? No, but uh, we're not in a position to pay them off because we haven't got the type of money that they're used to. Mm. What about in the source country? Is everyone getting paid off there? Yeah, that's not a problem. That's no problem. Not a problem. And what were the roots? Well, the roots was um, from Lagos to Liverpool. That's it. And from um, Ghana to Liverpool. So the sniffer dogs are trained to detect weed and coke. Did you take measures like wrapping it in certain ways and stuff. Yeah, we'd have it, it, it actually tinned. Tinned? Yeah. What was advertised on the tins? It wasn't. It was just plain silver tin, about four foot something, with your weed compressed in it. And that's it. Did you lose any loads? We lost some, but not a great deal. How did you lose them? When the customs stumble over them in their rummage. Did you factor that into your calculations that the percentage is going to be lost? We didn't, actually. Um, but fortunately, the first ones came through, and that stood us in good stead. Set you up, so you could take a few losses after that. It's, if you'd lost your first two or three, it could have just killed your business, couldn't yep. it, really? The eight people who were working for you, was that constant over time, or did you lose some of them? No, we split up. I mean, what happened? My, my dad had a stroke, and um, I I sort of stayed around instead of travelling to look after look after him, which I did for like seven years, and that was that. And so it sort of trailed off because I wasn't there. Would you say you were the mastermind then? Mm, not really. I, I, I was a mastermind for going out there. Yes. And were they like begging you to come back because you know they wanted to keep the money rolling in? Well, the thing is, I I stayed out there, and it took ten days for the ship to come to Liverpool, and ten days back the railroad service. So, in six months, we had what? I don't know, but I know I I when I did come back, I got uh, two carrier bags full of money and that was it 
in terms of the distribution network, was it just passed off to a few like mill people and then it goes down to like the street level and stuff? Yeah, well, you're not interested. Once it goes out of your hands yeah. as a weight, you're not interested. That's it. So you'd only deal with a certain few people? Yeah. No street level would be knocking on your door? No, no, no. Good. When you were distributing it, was it cash only or was it given out on credit? No, we knew who we could give credit to. Because you get some people who they phone you up, listen, listen, I've got money for 100 here, come and get it, please. And that's it. Were the situations when stuff was given out on credit and it wasn't repaid? No, we're very fortunate. Very fortunate. Are people that shit scared? <laughs> well, no, because it, if it, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Yeah. And it's simple. And you're giving credit to people that are known. It's not just not like someone that... Yeah. I've got a friend who's got a friend and he's supposed to be very... It's, yeah. You know, it's none of that crap, is it? Yeah. So Escobar over the years changed his methods every so many months. Did you just maintain the same method that you've described? We maintain the same method, but we also put things in like... Um, you had uh, Guinness kegs used to come from Nigeria and open them fill them, weld them that was it You're not going to spell it through again are you? Yeah. And how serious a drug was weed considered back then? Was it at the peak of the war on drugs where like um, I think it was Reagan and um, Nancy yeah. were doing all that stuff Just say no and they said that if you're buying drugs, you're financing narco-terrorism. Yeah. Well, the thing is, one of the people who made drugs so popular were the customs with their lies. Yeah. Because they'd catch, say, a hundred weight, and they'd say it was worth a million and things like that, and it wasn't. <sighs> and people for fool, I'll have a bit of that. And that was it. They still do it now, street yeah. values, such and such. You said... I don't know where we're all buying it from. You're getting ripped yeah. off, though, like, you know what I mean? That's how they get the promotions, isn't it? And you, you saw George H.W. Bush posing next to all these huge shipments of cocaine. But he was running the drugs in through the CIA, yeah. Yeah. Uh, financing that war in Nicaragua. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on, on that? <sighs> well, I mean, the corruption for when they took Noriega... It's so blatant, I can't understand why it's not publicised more. It's only just really getting accepted by people now mm. that they were running the drugs. Oh, yeah, I mean, Oliver North. <laughs> In his diaries, he said, we're picking up so much coke today, didn't he? He was on the ground. And there was one quote, um, someone said they were at a dinner that George H.W. Bush was at, and he, he bragged that they said, how, how can you get away with... Um, bringing the drugs in while waging a war on drugs. And he said, it's so far removed from the public's perception of what they would accept as reality, they would never, ever believe that was true. Yeah. So what's your take on the war on drugs and drug laws? I think uh, the drug laws are quite silly. It's a war they cannot win because people will always want to enjoy themselves. And that's it. It's like... Well, they tried prohibition during the twenties in America, and look where that got them: Al Capone and machine yeah. guns. It made it made a lot of people rich. That's it. So what you're saying is, if they did legalize it, 
profit opportunities for criminals would evaporate. Much so. And that would eliminate a lot of the violence Except the for those who are now bought fields in countries for the um, pharmaceutical. Pharmaceuticals? Yeah. Could you expand on that a little bit? Well, there's a lot of people now uh, buying uh, weed fields um, in Jamaica and Africa for pharmacology. That's it. For the CBD, is it? Or TCB? THC and CBD. Because yeah. you've got the kids that were there, um, having the seizures and stuff like that, and yeah. the oil's really... All these pharmaceuticals, they don't do anything for it, do they? Not a thing. But the cannabis oil fixes it. Yeah. Allegedly, we don't know that. There's no scientific proof that that. Well, it, uh, yeah, I, it I, I have proof America, that, no, it, it that my arthritis is practically non-existent because of it. Yeah, but like, the likes of glaucoma and serious things, people say it's, it's the cure for everything. I don't think it, it might be a cure for certain things. Queen Victoria's doctor said it's the most medicinal planet on the face of the earth. Bush and Reagan in the 80s ordered the destruction of all research into medical marijuana to protect the pharmaceutical industries. Yeah. Normal. <laughs> Normal. <laughs> Don't you think the floodgate is open now, though, because it's the American people who are voting at state level? To oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I, think, I think it will be uh, legitimised in America because uh, now you've got white people who are involved in it. It will be legalised. A lot of the countries already are, like California. Yeah. I mean, okay, they do have actors as like the governors and all that, but they are. Arnold Schwarzenegger is legalised, hasn't he? What about this country? What what will happen here with weed? It'll always be legal. Uh, if they legalise it, I mean, those who have the fields are going to make the money. Yeah. Are you investing in fields? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Forever the shrewd businessman. So, for the people watching this then, are there any stories that we've left out that you'd like to say today to the viewers? Not really. I remember once we were... Without incriminating yourself. <laughs> coming back from a blag that hadn't come off. And there were two carloads of us. And uh, just got to the outskirts of London. And a young fella come past in a car and cut in front. Had to slam the brakes on. Somebody said, let's have that can. Yeah. Rammed him, smashed his windows in with pickaxe handles and all went away laughing, laughing our heads off. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It saves them for getting road rage, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you would like to say to, in conclusion to the people watching this video? No, I haven't seen any of your shows, but I shall be interested in seeing them. And do you have any final questions? Yeah, would you like to opinion? plug your book, what's coming out? Well, it's uh, starting to get written in November. And it will be an expose. It'll be a must-buy. Is Jamie coming up here to spend some time yeah. with you? Perhaps he's, perhaps he's going to see you on the same um, journey. We've got to stay in the Adelphi. <laughs> All right, then. So, hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please let us know in the comments below. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. Huge thank you to people who donated. All those links are in the description box so we can film these podcasts in the studio with cameramen and sound engineers. 
and all the links to our socials and wild man's playlist you've got over 100 videos now on youtube hours and hours endless wild man stories and madness i also have new manufacturers for my t-shirts so it'll be none of that 20 power t-shirt what that evergreen are doing they're ripping everyone off and they're not paying me what they should be paying me so i've just sacked them uh, it'll come just after christmas and uh, i've got new t-shirts coming out they're going to be 15 pound and they're going to be better thicker value and most importantly, huge thank you to Michael Showers for coming in today and just taking his time out to spend this time with us. Cheers. Thank you very much.